Welcome back to GLF Live, the official podcast of the Global Landscapes Forum. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the word wildlife? Elephants, perhaps? Tigers? Polar bears? Chimpanzees, even? These so-called charismatic megafauna are popular symbols of what nature has to offer. But there's so much more from the natural world that we humans depend upon for our survival. From the food we eat, to the clothes we wear, to the medicines that keep us alive. When you consider that over a million species could go extinct within the next few decades because of us, the picture becomes rather worrying. And yet, all too often, we don't even notice how much we depend on wild species for our everyday needs. So in this episode, we're going to take a pause and recognize the other life forms that sustain us and rethink our relationships with them. Joining us today to guide us through that exercise is one of the world's leading wildlife experts, Dr. Marla Emery. Hi everyone, and welcome to GLF Live. I'm Gabrielle Lipton, the editor of Landscape News for the Global Landscapes Forum, and we are coming to you live from the UN headquarters in Bonn, Germany, because just about an hour ago, a really important report on biodiversity was launched here in a studio just below where we're sitting now. And that report is called the Sustainable Use of Wild Species Assessment, and it was launched by EPES, Intergovernmental Policy Science Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. So IPES is currently having meetings here in Bonn, its ninth session plenary, and one of the highlights of this meeting is this report that was launched today uh, that we're going to hear about uh, from Dr. Marla Emery, who I'll introduce in just a second. But first, to give a bit of context to this report, about three years ago, EPES launched a different report, which broke headlines with its finding that about 1 million species are at risk of extinction because of human activity. And the three main drivers of that biodiversity loss is first and foremost habitat loss and the degradation of natural habitats. Uh, the third reason was climate change, but the one in between, the second reason, was the over-exploitation of wild species. And so that is what this report is about. It digs into why that's happening, what we can do about it, and I encourage everyone to look into it. It's um, online now for everyone to read. It just launched, and we're about to hear from it from Dr. Marla Emery. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Dr. Emery is the scientific advisor for the Norwegian Institute for Nature Research, and she's a former research geographer with the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Forest Service. And her work has taken her from Mongolia to Colombia to Scotland, a lot in the U.S. as well, uh, with a focus on forests. And her role in this specific assessment was to co-chair it. She was one of three co-chairs. And as part of her duties, she really focused on bringing in indigenous and local knowledge, um, bringing that into the limelight of the proceedings. So thank you so much for taking the time. Congratulations on the launch of this incredible report. And um, I'd like to start with the basics to make sure that we're all on the same page, which is piecing apart the title itself. So could you define what you mean by wild species and also the stipulations for sustainable use? Oh, such good fundamental questions to begin with. So recognizing that there is a very large spectrum between species that are have been bred for generations or perhaps are being genetically modified to have specific characteristics that human beings are interested in. We would call them domestic species. And species in 
which human beings do not uh, modify their environments at all, don't uh, don't try to breed them at all. There is a there is a wide area, but basically, what we defined as the area of interest for this assessment is species that are not domesticated. And so that is what this assessment looks at, sustainable uses of species that are not domesticated. What is sustainable use? Sustainable use is use that preserves the populations and the genetic structures of wild species, as well as the habitats, the environments in which they occur, while providing benefits through direct use to human beings uh, today, and for future generations as well. Thank you. So really looking at that human environmental interface That's with using species. Exactly right. Great. Uh, so the report found that 70% of the world's poor is directly dependent on wild species. But wild species also underpin the economies of wealthy nations. Uh, could you give more insight into why everyone should care about this report? Yes. Uh, so uh, if you eat your breakfast on a table made from wood, uh, odds are pretty good that that wood came from a forest that could be considered to be a natural forest. I mean, there's a lot of plantation wood out there, but there's also an awful lot of wood from natural forests. So if you're eating your breakfast on that table, then you're making a direct use of a wild species. If you're putting wild blueberries in your muesli while you are having breakfast, again, you're consuming a wild species. If you're using a cosmetic that has actual ambergris in it, for example, you're using a wild species. Uh, so really, even in developed nations, we're often using wild species and we're not aware of it. Many cancer treatments are based on wild plants. Uh, in addition, we actually do interact directly in our own daily, daily lives more than we know. Uh, so for example, you know, we're, as you said, we're sitting here in, in Bonn and right now the linden trees have bracts on them through it's a part of the of the flower and tea made out of linden flower is is very valued something that many of us including myself enjoy and um, you'll see people on the streets of any city with linden trees gathering those flowers to take them home to make tea if you go for a nice walk and there's some berries on the side of the road you're going to maybe pick those up and put them in your mouth it's not a large-scale use but it's a use that connects you to nature mm -hmm. absolutely i think we overlook so many of the ways that we use wild species and that's something that re the report taps into really well is making clear all of our many many uses um this report took over four years to produce. It's the work of 85 experts such as yourself and over 200 contributing authors. Um, and it came into existence because it was asked for, it was demanded. Could you tell us why there was such a demand for this report? Well, um, as you said at the, at the outset, the IPBES Global Assessment identified that overuse of wild species is a key driver 
of biodiversity decline. And so clearly that's something that needs to be looked into. But in addition to that, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species uh, identified a need for further information on what species are being used, how they're being used, and what are the contexts within which they're being used so that instruments like CITES can be more effective because one of the things that we see consistently in trying to adopt policies to create or to uh, and to promote sustainable use of wild species is that uh, we really need to understand those systems as both social systems and ecological systems very thoroughly in the places where they occur in order to craft and uh, implement effective policies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so again, really looking at all the ways that humans are interacting with these species. And I'm going to skip ahead in my questions a bit and then come back to the more pointed questions about the report because it builds on something that you're just talking about, which is policy. And this report is so policy focused and lays out seven main ways policy can be reformulated to support more sustainable use of wild species. Uh, and I was wondering, just to take a big step back, why is there such an onus on policy to take responsibility for this issue? That is the charge of IPBES. The charge of IPBES is to bring the best available knowledge to decision makers and policymakers in particular. But we understand decision makers in a very ample sense. That is people who are making decisions at the local level all the way to the national level and the international level. And that was our charge. That sounds like a good enough reason fulfilling your mandate. Um, the report lays out as well the five main practices in which wild species are used, which are fishing, gathering, logging, terrestrial animal harvesting, which includes hunting, and then non-extractive practices such as simply enjoying nature. Uh, which of these main practices did you find are most in need of reform? I, th I think we have a figure in our summary for policymakers that uh, really stands out for me in that regard. And that figure shows how many species, wild species are used by people. And we have small circles. These are weighted circles. We have very little, cir little circles. And then we have a one very large circle that is 50% of those species. And that's the wild plants and fungi and algae that, that are used. And then next to them, we show bars of how many indicators we have to use in order to monitor and assess the sustainability of the uses of those groups of, of species, um, which correspond to the fishing, hunting, gathering, et cetera. And, and what we see is for the largest group of species, we have almost no indicators. And that's clearly, um, a major knowledge gap. And so what will be done about fulfilling that gap? Well, we, we, start, by, we start by calling it out mm -hmm. and saying, ah, you know, 
we've put a lot of effort as scientific communities, as policy communities into developing indicators in these other areas. And perhaps there's something that we're overlooking here that is very important. And we, it's time for us to begin to bring more attention to those groups of species and those groups of, of, of uses. And so again, one of the purposes of IPBES is to highlight exactly this kind of thing so that they can be prioritized for future research, for future investment, um, for policy making and for information creation. I think one other thing that I would add there, uh, which is a very important finding of this assessment is, although there may not be science, uh, that scientific information about the sustainability of those, many of those species, about the basic ecology of many of those species, in many cases, there is very rich and detailed indigenous and local knowledge. And where the principle of free prior and informed consent is observed, that is where indigenous peoples and local communities are able to make choices about what information they share and how it is used. Um, that, that is an available source of, of knowledge from which we could all benefit. Mm -hmm. So first step is knowing what we don't know, which this report calls attention to, and hopefully some scientists will pick that up and carry that forward. Um, but then what you were saying about going to the indigenous groups and the local groups and um, gathering what they know, I know that's been a big part of your work and your career, and especially your interaction in the development of this report. Uh, and something that you said earlier in the, um, the release, the launch of the report just before our conversation now, which I found was so interesting, was how different groups spread out across the globe are using different species, perhaps, uh, but having the same challenges. I was wondering if you could give a couple examples of that. Sure. Um, well, during the, the press uh, release, the press uh, interview, uh, I talked about migratory species and peoples who have for millennia had very close relationships with migratory species. Um, and in particular, we can think about caribou. Uh, and the caribou have territory through which for hundreds to thousands of years, they've moved. There are places where they spend their summers uh, and Fatten, fatten up and have calves and then places where they spend the winters that are perhaps less harsh. Uh, and the health of those caribou herds depends on their being able to make that movement. The survival of calves depends upon their being able to make that movement. And uh, the survival of the communities, the cultures that depend upon those caribou depends on the caribou being able to make that movement. Um, so if there is say some sort of infrastructure development introduced in the middle of that migratory pathway that prevents the caribou from making that, that migration safely or, or even at all, then it not only has clearly um, can have a very dire ecological uh, consequence, but at a similarly dire cultural context, uh, outcome, social outcome as well. Mm -hmm. um, other, other examples. Hmm. 
Well, I work a lot with Indigenous peoples in the Great Lakes region of, of North America. And a very important species in that region is wild rice. Uh, wild rice is a grass that grows in standing water. Uh, it is uh, highly nutritious, has a lower glycemic level, for example, than standard rice, than many other carbohydrates that we can consume, uh, very rich in, in, in nutrients and a staple food for the indigenous peoples of that region, also part of their, their origin story. Uh, they were they, their origin story says that they migrated from east of that location and that they were told by a, a, a spiritual being that they should move west until they got to the place where food grows on water. So when they arrived in, the, in a place where wild rice grows, they understood that this was the place that they were supposed to be. They have been relying on wild rice, it's part of ceremonies, and as I said, a staple food, seven generations back, they want to be doing that seven generations forward. But there are industries and mines that have developed uh, in that area, and when the water is polluted, the rice is not safe. Climate change is going to change the precipitation regimes of, of that area. And wild rice de depends on a very particular water level and actually on very particular variations in the water level through the seasons. So if we have, as the models suggest for that region, that there will be more rain that will fall in more intense, fewer but more intense events, then we will see the hydrology of that region be altered and that potentially places wild rice at risk and potentially places the role of wild rice in the livelihoods and cultures of those people at risk as well. Mm -hmm. Such heartbreaking stories. <laughs> yeah, sadly. Mm -hmm. One of the more positive angles on this report as well um, was uh, it lays out ways that people can engage more with wild species to meet the sustainable development goals. So ways that we can sustainably use wild species to feed ourselves that are um, different than the ones that we're doing now, for example. But this made a question arise in my mind, how do we engage more with wild species while at the same time doing less harm? Such a good question. Uh, I think first, it's important for us to be aware that we are engaging with wild species, to know something about the wild species that we're engaging with. There's there's no single recipe for a use of a wild for all the use of all wild species to be sustainable. But what we do know is we need to understand them. We need to understand their life cycles. We need to understand how we can interact with them, when we can interact with them, where we can interact with them in a way that isn't going to damage them, that is going to allow them to continue to be present in the land and, and to thrive so that we can similarly thrive in, in a landscape. So if I could give you an example of the kinds of measures that are, are common among indigenous peoples and local communities that maybe have a long-term relationship with a species. 
um, in the case of the wild, returning to the case of the wild rice, for example, there's deep understanding of the life cycle of the wild rice. If you harvest too soon, you're going to disrupt that life, that life cycle. If you harvest too much, you're going to disrupt that life cycle. So customary harvesting techniques, for example, make sure that a lot of the rice, the seed, falls back into the water so that it reseeds itself. You don't take everything. You um, make sure that you leave some for other beings, like ducks, for example, who similarly like wild rice. And one of the ways that that is accomplished is that there are people in a community who are responsible for watching that rice, for going out and checking it regularly and making sure that it is the right time to harvest it so that when you knock it off the stalk, what falls into the water is mature enough that it can sprout and, and regrow. And you don't go out until the people who are responsible for monitoring it have in fact determined that now is the time that we can have it and be nourished by it. And we can also help it regrow. You have such a beautiful way of describing these issues. And I love the line that you said that um, we shouldn't take everything. Mm -hmm. I think that could be a motto for these times. In general. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And often the teachings are, you never take the first thing that you find. You never take, you certainly never take the last thing that you find. And you, um, and you don't take the biggest or most robust thing mm -hmm. that you find because you want that to still be out there reproducing and making more of itself. Mm -hmm. A healthy dose of self-control is good. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And that goes to another point in this assessment, which, which is um, we're going to have to exercise self-control in our consumption. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely want to get to that and um, the ways that you hope this report is carried forward, especially in conversations later this year. But I just have one more question before we get there. Uh, which is, again, something that I found so interesting was the gender lens that is cast upon this report and the ways that um, women harvest differently than men. Uh, men know different things about different species than women. Um, there are different uh, patterns of knowledge and, um, and habit on both sides of the gender equation. Uh, could you explain a bit more... Um, what are the opportunities here? How do you, how can we leverage this gender difference in relationships with wild species um, for the better of everyone? So one of the key characteristics of sustainable use systems that we've identified in this assessment is involvement, transparent participatory involvement of the of people who use a wild species in the crafting of policies of, of management systems. And we, you know, we see that a lot, but um, it's not uncommon uh, for such systems to perhaps reach out to frequently the men in a, in a community. Mm -hmm. And to perhaps not find ways to involve the women in a community. And when that happens, 
then we are overlooking the uses that are particularly important to women. We're overlooking the wisdom, the, the knowledge that is resident in women because they're the people who are harvesting it, processing it, you making, making use of it. So uh, what, we've, what we really felt it important to, to state clearly is that when we're engaging in, when we're designing these kinds of participa participatory and transparent processes, that we keep gender in mind and that we make sure that there's nobody that we're, that we're missing. Um, and, and, you know, it's also possible uh, for that gender dynamic to be flipped around some things. I think the other thing that's really essential for us with regards to gender is that we not go into a new community with a preconceived notion of which gender does what. Because in fact, that varies greatly between cultures and between places. Um, you know, when, we, when we're thinking about um, fishing and, and fisheries, for example, um, community, coastal communities very often um, have clearly defined gender roles for who fishes what kind of fish, what kind of marine animal, who takes it to market, um, who, do, who does the processing. But we don't, wanna, we don't want to assume that we know that when we enter in, into a place, which is why another key finding of this assessment is that we need to be looking at the social structures, the social context of wild species uses, as much as we're looking at the ecological contexts of them in order for us to design and, and promote sustainable use practices. Yeah, super interesting. Um, now going into where this report should go and how it should be taken forward, there are a number of important conversations coming up later in this year around trade and biodiversity and climate change. Um, there's Panama, there's the climate talks in Egypt, there's finally uh, the biodiversity convention happening in Montreal. How do you hope that this report informs the negotiations happening um, around the world this year? Well, we hope that it does. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so clearly there are aspects of this report that are particularly germane to each of those uh, policy processes that, that, that you have mentioned. Uh, so uh, we, we certainly cannot be prescriptive and tell the CBD, for example, uh, what they should be doing, but um, there is a great deal of very valuable information here. And uh, the co-chairs and the experts who worked on this assessment will be working very actively to make sure that uh, that uh, opportunity is put right there for people to um, make easy use of the results from, from this assessment. You know, we, there, we used 6,200 references in this assessment. Um, and without wanting to break my arm patting our collective back for having done this, this information is not available under one cover anyplace else. This is, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of outstanding science about individual species, 
individual places, individual communities, but nowhere else will you find that brought together and analyzed and, and the patterns identified and synthesized in the way that you will with this, with this assessment. So we mm -hmm. sincerely hope that uh, that will make the job of, of the CBD, of the, you know, of Montreal easier. Yeah, hopefully just some light summer reading yeah. for everyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then my last question for you, and you've kind of scattered it through, uh, uh, peppered a couple throughout our conversation, but, uh, and people are going to hopefully go to the headlines and see the numbers and see the main statistics coming out of this report. But what are some of the main messages that mean the most to you? Things like the self-control we need to exhibit, things like that, that you hope resonate and take hold in the hearts of minds and of policymakers and of everyone really. I think right up at the top is that ha almost half of humanity uses and or benefits from wild species uses. And that's not just something that happens someplace else. That's not something exotic. Um, that And that therefore then not something that just somebody over there is responsible for. Wherever you are, you as well benefit and if you benefit you have responsibilities mm -hmm. and the responsibilities that you have in, include taking a look at um, what those things that tend to lead toward um, unsustainable outcomes are and doing your best uh, in, to to not contribute to that, but also, and I think for me, what's really, really deeply important to me is um, there are sustainable uses out there in the world and making sure that we support those sustainable uses, that we don't inadvertently do things that make them socially or ecologically unsustainable. For example, that we don't inadvertently criminalize traditional practices that are socially sustainable and ecologically sustainable. And that when we see them, we get inspired by them and we use them as models for how we can make more sustainable use or how we can make sustainable use more common in the world than it is today. Well, thank you so much for ending on a positive note. It's nice to know that there, there are places we can look in the world to find inspiration. And maybe it's simply just appreciating the tea that's growing on trees <laughs> around us as we walk around. Uh, but thank you so much, Dr. Emery, for your time. It's been such, a, such an immense pleasure to talk to you. Congratulations again to you and your team and all the experts on this report. And to everyone who joined us, thank you so much for making space in your day for this GLF Live. And we'll see you next time. If you enjoyed this episode, stay tuned for another one next week about how eco-anxiety is threatening the mental health of young people. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or Stitcher, and reach out to us on social media with the hashtag GLFLive. And for everything you need to know about landscapes, ecosystems, and climate change, check out our website at globallandscapesforum.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.